Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. I'll read verses 21 to 35, and the words will be up on the screen in case you didn't bring along uh, a Bible. But before I read, let's join our hearts in this prayer for illumination. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, pour out wisdom and understanding on us, that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds will be opened to receive all that leads to life and to holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant had went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's a story that will probably be familiar to you if you have ever taken care of kids or had been a young kid or are a young kid, which is all of us. Big sister and little brother are playing nicely in the sandbox on a warm, sunny day, digging holes, pushing sand around, scooping it into a bucket, normal sandbox stuff. They're working together, giggling, mostly having fun. At least until little brother momentarily loses control over his mini shovel, sending a pile of sand flying into big sister's eyes. Her eyes start to water from the scratchy sand. Maybe she starts to cry. Or maybe instead of crying, she turns to little brother and gives him a big shove, pushing him to the ground. So now there are two children crying. Adult in charge hears the commotion and tries to calm everyone down. 
Now, at this point, it's unlikely that little brother on his own will be inclined to apologize. Say sorry to your sister. It's met with a very unenthusiastic, sorry for getting sand on you. What did you say? I said sorry. Okay, now tell your brother that you forgive him. It's maybe met with an argument, but he got sand in my eyes. Or at the very least, an unenthusiastic, I forgive you. Now at this age, sincerity is really secondary. Learning the language of reconciliation is the primary goal. Learning the language will help these kids be able to express their genuine remorse and genuine forgiveness in the future. But for now, the apology and the forgiveness are about skin deep. But the lesson is still valuable. The story helps us to see something true about ourselves. Forgiveness does not come naturally. We are at best people who want to see wrong behavior disciplined. At worst, we are vindictive people who want to settle the score ourselves. Jesus, too, liked to use stories to help people see the truth about themselves. And in our text this morning, Jesus tells a story that shows the truth about humanity. Humanity has racked up unpayable debts, and we are also terribly vindictive. Jesus has just finished his teaching his disciples about how to deal with sin in the community of believers. He teaches them how to graciously confront someone who has done something wrong. And then Jesus dismisses the class, so to speak. But one student, one disciple, stays behind. Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sin against me? Up to seven times? The commentator Douglas Hare suggests it's like Peter saying, you know, that stuff about discipline that you said, that's all good. But what if someone keeps insulting me? Do I need to live with the indignity just because he mumbles sorry under his breath? Or is it really in the best interest of the person who has wronged me to go on forgiving them when it's clear that the apology is half-hearted or only skin deep? That's not really going to change them, is it? I mean, these are both fair questions. On one hand, Peter may be concerned about the dignity of the person being sinned against. On the other hand, he may be concerned with the moral formation of the person who is sinning. Peter offers a generous response up to seven times. Now, in the Bible, the number seven is not just this many, okay? It's a symbolic number, it means completion fullness and perfection. So Peter seems to be on the right track. He's suggesting that the follower of Christ is going to be doing a whole lot of forgiving. But even that's not quite enough. Jesus intensifies it not only seven, but 77 or even 70 times seven times. Now I could spend the rest of the morning parsing out the significance of 77 or even 70 times 7. But the point would be the same. Followers of Christ must renounce every ounce of intention of getting even with someone else. But this does not come easily. Forgiveness does not come naturally. 
Jesus' followers are, at best, people who want to see wrong behavior disciplined. At worst, they are vindictive people who want to settle the score themselves. And so Jesus tells this story in three scenes to help Peter see the truth about the heart of Jesus' followers. And if he told it today, it might sound something like this. Scene one, the leader of a country, someone like a prime minister, receives an annual report from the revenue agency's audit of tax income and government spending, a very exciting document. But in this report, there's a major red flag. There is strong evidence that some provincial governor, someone like a premier or a high-up government official, has embezzled a zillion dollars. Now, pause. Does that number sound dramatic and not real? (laughs) That's kind of the point. Because in the Greek language, you cannot express a sum larger than what Jesus uses here. Many translations make a note of how many days the number uh, equals, like 200,000 days of wages or something. But really, it's a symbolic number. It is the indefinite plural of the highest number used in calculations. So zillion will do. Back to the action. Get him in here right away, the prime minister tells his staff as he slams his fist on the desk. The anger is radiating from his whole body. The governor is brought in, knees shaking. So, you have that zillion dollars that you stole? No, sir, it's, uh, it's gone. You know what I ought to do with you? I ought to throw you in jail and drag your name through the press for the rest of your life. Not just you, but your wife and all your kids as well. You all go to jail. Your name will be ruined forever. At the thought of this, the governor loses his balance and falls to his knees begging for mercy. If you just just give me some time, I promise I will pay it back. Everyone in the room knows this is a lie. There is no possible way that amount of money could ever be paid back. It's not even a real number. But the prime minister is deeply moved by these pleas for mercy. Okay, you know what? I know you're never going to be able to repay this. So just forget about it. Go home to your family. Give them all a big hug. Just don't ever do something like this again. This is an act of extravagant forgiveness. The staffers in the room stand there stunned, mouths hanging open as the governor gets to his feet, scrambles out of the room before the prime minister can change his mind. End of scene one, close the curtain on the stage, right? This could be the end of the story. Jesus has essentially illustrated his point to Peter. Jesus has said that the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, there is extravagant forgiveness 77 times. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on, scene two. As the governor leaves the building, he sees an old co-worker grabs the person by the neck. Hey, buddy, where's that money I loaned you for your business startup? I heard things are going pretty well. You think I'm just going to forget about what I loaned you? 
He loaned this person a good chunk of money, about $18,000 in today's terms, if we're being literal. It's not an insignificant amount in itself. But the literal amount of money is less important than the contrast between a zillion and 18,000, which is to say the contrast is extreme. Holding the old coworker by the neck, he demands, pay it back now or else. Some of those staffers from inside happen to see what's going on, and they report it back to the prime minister. Can you believe that guy? In the final, third scene of Jesus' story, security breaks up the scuffle outside, drags the governor back into the building where he is promptly confronted and thrown in jail until he can repay his debt, which will be never. The governor gets what he was owed in the first place. This, Jesus ends the story, is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. It's an unsettling story that shows how forgiveness does not come naturally, even to those who have received forgiveness. This story, this parable, shows that even Jesus' followers are people who have racked up this unpayable debt to their king, And even when that debt is forgiven, they can still be vindictive toward other people. Having been forgiven an unimaginable amount, they're not always inclined to forgive a lesser debt. We too are meant to see ourselves in the story. We are that governor who has mismanaged and embezzled resources that are not our own. But a zillion dollars worth? Is the sin in our lives really comparable to a zillion dollars? Back in May, I was helping to teach an online course on worship for university students. In the first week of class, we talked about confession in worship. Now, this morning's service was a little different, but usually confession is that time toward the beginning of the service where we pray and tell God about the things bad that we have done and the good things that we have left undone. So we were discussing this as a class, and a number of the students commented that they didn't think it was right to make people confess unless they were genuinely sorry or if they didn't think they had really done anything wrong. And I guess I was a little taken aback by that, that somebody might not think they'd done anything wrong all week, but Then I thought about my own life, the times I've sat in the pew on a Sunday morning during the time of confession, trying to think really hard about anything I'd done that was bad that week. I mean, like, I guess I lost my temper a couple times. Probably went over the speed limit, but I mean, doesn't everybody. I probably could be less wasteful with my time or resources or something. I mean, I think most of the time we tend to think we're pretty decent people. And the reaction of my students to the idea of a weekly confession pretty much confirmed that suspicion. I mean, no one's perfect, of course, but we're all just trying our best. Are our offenses against God really comparable to a zillion dollars worth of debt? But how different is the picture that the Heidelberg Catechism paints of the state of humanity. 
when it says, I have a natural tendency to hate God and to hate my neighbor. And in answer to the question, are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and we are inclined toward all evil? The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us, yes, we are so corrupt that we are totally unable to do good and inclined toward all evil unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. There are, of course, too, the multitudes of ways that we deceive ourselves about our own actions and attitudes, even our complicity in complex issues of injustice and unrighteousness. We are not the best judges of our own ledgers. And as the old theologian Thomas Aquinas points out, a sin against an infinite God is an infinite sin that deserves an infinite punishment. So I suppose in the end, yes, we are supposed to see ourselves like that person who has racked up an unpayable debt. This story is telling us the truth about ourselves. But just like the story, we are also recipients of God's extravagant forgiveness. Each Sunday when we do a time of confession and worship, it's immediately followed by an assurance of forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus cried out to the Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And through his death and resurrection, we are assured that Jesus' plea for forgiveness extends to us. Even though we don't realize the full scope of our sins and offenses, our debts have been paid through the sacrifice. Close curtain, end scene, right? Not quite. The story tells us a second unfortunate truth about ourselves. That even though we are recipients of extravagant grace and mercy, we can be terribly vindictive. There are, of course, the fairly small things, like shoving your brother if he gets sand in your eyes. Or the dangerous things, like tailgating someone who cuts you off in busy traffic. There are also the ways that some of us engage in a kind of cancel culture or online shaming. Where if someone says or does something problematic, we categorically dismiss or cancel that person as someone who is unenlightened, uninformed, and not worthy of ever being taken seriously ever again. The problem with this is that it doesn't give people a chance to learn from or apologize for their mistakes. And shaming people into changing behavior is decidedly ineffective and ultimately dehumanizing. But there's a difference between something like cancel culture, which emboldens vindictiveness, and holding people accountable for their actions, which is justice. Go back. Forgiveness does not mean you condone abuse or simply forget what's happened. The commentator Douglas Hare, again, is helpful in articulating this. He writes that unlimited forgiveness should not be confused with a kind of sentimental toleration of hurtful behavior. Christians may be often guilty of forgiving too much or too quickly, 
He goes on, the misbehavior of alcoholics is not to be laughed off. Ministers who fail to control their sexual impulses should not be lightly excused. Teenagers who betray their parents' trust are not simply to be forgiven. A much more loving course of action is to insist that they amend their behavior to regain trust. Now, the previous teaching of Jesus on discipline should make that point clear, but it bears repeating again. Forgiveness does not mean you condone abuse or simply forget what's happened. Forgiveness may not erase the past, but it does open up a new future. As recipients of God's extravagant forgiveness through Jesus, the Holy Spirit now empowers us to rewrite scene two of Jesus' parable. Instead of the scene of the government official when he grabs the neck of someone who owes him a debt, the Holy Spirit rewrites scene two to look more like the people of Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina. Back in 2015, Dylan Roof walked into a church Bible study, and after sitting in a pew for a while, he opened fire on the other folks' presence, killing nine people in an act of racist rage. Members of this historical black church appeared in court for Roof's bond hearing a short 48 hours after the shooting. The judge invited them to make a statement if they wanted to. Nadine was first up. She lost her mother, Ethel, in the shooting. The picture on the screen is a picture of Ethel's funeral. Nadine looked at Dylan for the first time, and she said, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I'll never be able to talk to her ever again. I'll never hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. A few other members also forgave Dylan as well, including Chris Singleton, who decided to forgive Dylan in the middle of a baseball game. A few years later, Chris said, after seeing what happened and the reason why it happened, and after seeing how people could forgive, I truly hope that people will see it wasn't just us saying words. I know for a fact that it was something greater than us, using us to bring our city together. We know that the something greater than us was the Holy Spirit rewriting scene two of Jesus' parable in anticipation of God's coming kingdom. This is the same Spirit of God at work in our lives today. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the clearest ways that God's forgiveness is conveyed to us is when Jesus sits down for a meal with his disciples on the night before he would die. And after sharing the bread, he takes a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this cup, fruit of the vine, from now on, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." The celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning is our reminder of scene one. Whether we eat the bread and drink from the cup this morning or practice a spiritual fast, if you're gathered in person, we are those people whose sins 
have been forgiven, whose unpayable debts have been paid by the sacrifice of Christ. And so we come to the table, even as we continue to be formed by the Holy Spirit to practice that same forgiveness that we've received, to rewrite the second scene. And we come to the table to eat and drink from the fruit of the vine in anticipation of that day when we'll drink with it anew with Jesus Christ and the coming kingdom of God. Thanks be to God for these gifts. Let's pray. Merciful and forgiving God, you've been gracious with us beyond what we deserve. Thank you for this gift of your word that assures us of your extravagant forgiveness and that challenges us to extend a measure of that forgiveness in our own lives. Help us to receive what we've heard through your word and now to live in ways that honor you above all through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.